Father, we come before you and we stand before you as a grateful people. Lord, thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy, for the bounties of the tables, Lord, that we sit down to. Grateful for your grace that you've shown, Father God, to this nation and the mercy you've had. Grateful, Father God, that we are represented by such fine young men and women, Father God, in the jobs that they do. Grateful, Father God, of the sacrifices of organizations such as the Patriot Guard. Grateful, Father God, that that people have a heart, Lord, a servant's heart, and Father, that people care. We're just reminded of that daily, Father God, and I just thank you as we gather this day, Father God, that as we gather here today, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before, and Lord, we just thank you for them and their sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We, uh, I had the opportunity uh, some time back to view a documentary on television, and I'm going to be the first one to stand before you and say there's not a whole lot on television that I view or that I like. But I'm going to say that this documentary was done by a couple of young college students, and what they did was they went out on some naval vessels, uh, and they just spent time with the men and women that were, were, were in the service, and they made an effort just to really, not with any agenda, but just document the life, the, 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 the living conditions, the life that, that these people in the service lived. The documentary, as I turn to it, the one that I remember is there was a young woman on an aircraft carrier. They'd gone through some of the things. That's a, a, of course, that's a, a very large ship, I know, and, and I know they, they are deployed to sea for great lengths of time. But as they interviewed this young woman, she was alone in a uh, sort of a dimly lit bunk area, and she was folding her clothes as she sat there, and uh, she was talking to the film crew and explaining that her husband was serving in the Navy also, but regulations prohibited them from serving together on the same ship. Tears moistened her eyes, and her voice quivered as she explained, they teach us duty first, then family. Her voice broke, and she began to cry softly and said, it's hard. Duty is the conduct or action required by one's occupation or position. Military personnel are acutely aware of their duty because these duties are laid out for them. Our duties as Christians are, quite frankly, as clear. We as Christians have duties to God and duties to our society. I'd like to go to Matthew 5, we'll start, excuse me, Matthew 22, we'll start in verse 15. For those of you who have not been here before, I guess we'll have it up here shortly. Matthew 15. Matthew 22. 15. I've often said from this pulpit, the curse of bifocals up here is that, you know, 
everything I read is right in that dead spot. I can I could preach back here or I could preach way down here and everything's fine. They never should have took that six inches that they took off of this pulpit. <laughs> everything was fine until then. <laughs> That <laughs> uh, or that I would shrink, I guess. <laughs> okay. I did say 22, didn't I? All right. Matthew 22, we'll start in verse 15. We'll go to verse 22. This is the question of tribute money that was posed to Jesus. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose name is on this image and subscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. In verse 20, Jesus elicited from them a response and said unto them, Whose is this image and subscription? And uh, superscription, the the Pharisees were looking for a way to condemn Jesus because if he said it's not fair to pay tribute money or we shouldn't pay tribute to Caesar, he would be condemned by the the Roman law. And if he said that it was an obligation that we should pay this duty, then he would be they, he would be unpopular with the people because this tax was a very unpopular tax. It was it was collected by an army that occupied their land, but Jesus. In asking this question, uh, Jesus elicited from them the principle of his answer by causing them to acknowledge that Caesar's image and inscription was on the coin. In verse 21, it tells us, And they said unto him, Caesar. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Caesar's coinage represented Caesar's government with its attendant benefits. The coin indicated that the Romans were responsible for maintaining law and order. Therefore, it was right that Caesar's dues should be paid. But it's equally right to give God his due. What is God's due? Our lives, which he has redeemed. Our service which demonstrates to a darkened world the life-changing love of the Almighty God of all the universe, the creator and sustainer of all life. Our total love and devotion. Honor. Matthew 8, 5 through 10. This is the story of the centurion's servant. Of course, we all know that the centurion was a Roman officer over a, uh, 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 a, a, a larger command, I think a thousand troops, but centurions were basically the officers of their army. 
In chapter 8, verse 5, And then, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but only but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in all of Israel. The centurion honored Christ by his faith in the authority which Jesus possessed. He was a man under authority and he understand, understood the principle of authority that says, I am given responsibility. I am given the, the responsibility to, to care for, the responsibility to take care of these men that are under my command. I am given the responsibility to carry out the orders of those who are my superiors. I recognize that. But what was it that the nation of Israel didn't recognize? They didn't recognize Jesus as that authority, as having that authority. They didn't recognize Jesus as being responsible to carry out what God his Father had given him to carry out. But a centurion in the Roman army, the occupying army, and you, you, you know the, the, uh, 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 the leadership, the, the way that they described um, uh, leadership, the way they described the occupying army of the Romans was Pax Romana, which meant the Roman fist or the Roman hand. The Romans ruled in a very uh, brutal manner. And they ruled and had conquered almost all of the earth that was known at that time. The Romans had one of the greatest societies that had ever been established on the face of the earth. They knew. If you remember... If you remember the authority that went with being a, a Roman, being a Roman citizen, you remember when Paul was flogged. And he said, how is it to these people, how is it that you flog me, a Roman citizen? And one of the officers in the military that was commanded the garrison went to Paul and he said, I'm a Roman citizen and it cost me a great deal of money to become one. How is it? that you became a Roman citizen. He said, I was born one. And great fear was upon all of those people that had flogged Paul because they knew the penalty for flogging an innocent Roman. Romans were entitled to every, every aspect of the law. They could not. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be flogged apart from a trial. And they were very scared. And they said to Paul, they put him back in his cell and they came in the dark of night or the dim of day and said, if you'll just leave, we'll forget about this whole thing. Paul said, no. He said, you publicly acknowledge what you've done to me. You make that apology public. I'd like to say to you that the American serviceman and the American servicewoman in this world in which we live carry that kind of respect and carry that kind of obligation that we owe to them. We owe to our servicemen and women an obligation that says, 
we support you. That's what the Romans, that's all the Romans were doing in their government. They were just saying, we support our citizens, irregardless of where they are, irregardless of what they do in the world. You have all the, the privileges that come with being a citizen of Rome. Our servicemen and women who serve overseas are entitled to all the privileges of being a citizen of these United States. One of those privileges is an obligation on our part to support those young men and women. To support them. To help them. To encourage them. Because they understand the obligation that they have which is to carry out the commands of their superiors. So Paul said that we are to or, or, excuse me, Paul said when he was uh, flogged, he said, you, you, you just can't do this to me. I mean, that's a paraphrase and a pretty poor one at that. But basically, that's what he said. You can't do this to me. Well, they'd already done it. But he said, in doing this to me, you violated the covenant that I have with Rome, the most powerful nation on all the face of the earth. And if they decide, if I report this, if it comes to that place, where they have to take action, they will take action. And you will suffer because of the injustice that I have suffered. And they knew it. They feared. They feared greatly. We project our power on the face of the earth. I believe in my heart that the United States is finally that greatest and last repository of all that is good on the face of the earth. Now, that's not to say, I don't want, you, I don't want to say that, that there is only good that comes from the United States or that the United States is the only place from whence good comes. But, you know, 90% of all of the money that is sent to people, missionaries overseas, is sent from the United States. We are a benevolent nation. We are a benevolent people. One of the things that indicated this was 10 or 12 years ago, whenever it was, we, we fought the first Gulf War. And there were tens of thousands of prisoners who surrendered themselves. And they surrendered themselves to the American forces. And as those, you know, there was, there was quite a quandary. What are we to do with all these prisoners? Well, they, they sort of shepherded them and herded them all together and put people in charge of them. And in one of the uh, television, uh, just as a background scene to whatever it was that was transpiring, there was a young serviceman standing there holding his arms. And, and he looked down. There was some sort of an indication or a gesture from this, this other prisoner of this nation, and, uh, an Iraqi. And the soldier went over to the back of a truck and he pulled out a meal, one of the MREs, and he walked over and he handed it to that young man. The Japanese, when they surrendered to the United States at the end of the war, expected terrible retribution from Douglas MacArthur, the commander of the Philippines, where the war actually basically started, where the Japanese moved against the United States, they attacked Pearl Harbor, but they attacked the garrison in the Philippines, the army in the Philippines, and, and took a great many of the men in that army captive, and the death rates in Japanese camps were in excess of 60%, as opposed to the European theater, where the death rate was less than 
The Japanese were a, a, a very uh, militaristic, a very warlike society, and they believed in this thing, honor, and there was no honor in surrender. So they looked down upon those who surrendered. They despised them, and they, they terribly mistreated them. But at the end of the war, in Tokyo Bay, when the armistice, was, the surrender was signed on the deck of the battleship Missouri, the Japanese who signed that were expecting, they, they, they stood on the deck, thousands of sailors hanging all over everything that they could hang on on that ship. And they were acutely aware that all of those eyes were on them. They did not expect that they should leave that ship with their lives intact. And when Douglas MacArthur spoke in a very magnanimous way about the Japanese people and the American obligation to them, they said, we knew then America was a nation different than our own. Because they knew that they as Japanese would not, would not have treated a surrendered, a conquered nation in the same manner in which the Americans treated it. I say that to say this. That is a part of the heritage that we have. We will talk briefly about this issue of heritage here in just a minute. But that is the foundation from which I form my opinion that says we are indeed the last repository of that which is good in this, country, in, in, in this world. Because our... Judeo-Christian ethic teaches us, the roots, the, the, the foundation on which we're formed, teaches us compassion. There are so many other nations in all the world that understand only power, only retribution, only evil, because we serve a God who is a God of compassion, not a God who serves, who, who, who holds his... Uh, uh, his subjects, his, his believers by the edge of the sword. You know, if, if you forsake the Christian faith tomorrow and walk away from it, I guarantee you that there's no one going to come to kill you. Not in this church. But, 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 but I tell you what, you look at, the, you look at Islam, and if you, if, if, well, first of all, if you leave Islam, yeah, you're under, you're under a death warrant. If you convert to Christianity, you're under a death warrant. We, we see uh, instances of this in the law where uh, people are tried for killing their own relatives, sisters, uh, husbands, brothers, because they converted to Christianity. We alone, we alone who are Christians, we alone who worship God, Jehovah God, we alone, as a, as a, I hate to say religion, but as a faith in the world, we alone come from that perspective of forgiveness and of compassion and of love. And all the things that are the opposite of that are the things which come from these other religions. We had the privilege of spending, uh, uh, you know, three weeks in Thailand here just to, uh, about a week ago, and uh, you sense the bondage. We crossed over the border into China one afternoon. I tell you, it was like walking from a sunlit sky to just nothing but rain and clouds. 
You could sense the spirit of it that's in that country. You could sense the spirit of it that is, that is in uh, the Buddhist faith in Thailand. And, uh, you know, it's a, faith, it's a faith of merit. It's a faith of works that suggests that the only way you can get to heaven, which you only want to get to heaven so you can be reincarnated to another stage of life, is demerits and merits. If you've got more merit, if you've given more money, people ride elephants. And they walk around begging money to feed the elephants. And by doing that, you get merit. You go into the square, you buy doves that have been uh, caged, and if you let them loose, you get merit. Which begs the question, do the people that put them in the cage get the merits? That's something that there is, you know, you don't really get a very sound answer to that question. But the issue is, you, you basically buy your way into heaven. You hope you have more good than you have bad. We come from a faith that says we were all bad. All of us fell short of God's expectation for us. When sin entered the world, entered the human race in the Garden of Eden, so we know that we all needed forgiveness. We, we should recognize we need forgiveness. We need redemption. And, and our Bible tells us it's not of works. It's of faith. Lest any man boast. Because if it's works and you get to heaven, there's always going to be somebody that says, I gave more. And you'll always be one to say, I gave more than him. It's not works. It's not merit. Our faith alone in the world, in the faith of wor- uh, 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 on the face of this earth, our faith alone is the faith that suggests that it is merely because God loved us before we loved Him. Back to the issue of rendering Romans thirteen seven. Jesus had told the Pharisees that it was rightful to render unto Caesar. That has always been a question uh, among Christian people, uh, particularly at time of war. Is it right that we do this? Is it, is it not right? Does it not go against the Word? The Word as God speaks it. But you know, the, the Bible tells us very clearly that we are to render unto Caesar. And if Caesar said it's your duty to serve, then it's your duty to serve. Caesar says it's your duty to register for, for, for you know, in my, in, when I was a young man, they had the draft. The army is not a, an army of conscripts anymore, which makes it all the more. It's an army of volunteers. Every man and woman that serves in the United States military serves because he wants to, not because he's been forced to. And the issue was raised in Congress some time back. We're going to, 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 there's an effort to bring back the draft. And one of the generals stood up and he said, why would we do that? It would be dumb. We have an army that every man in that army wants to be there. Why would we put them in with people who didn't want to be there? We are to render unto Caesar. And we are to render unto others. We, we are to give unto others their due. I, w- I want to go to Romans 13.7. 
And it says, render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And that is why we are here today. Because we are to render unto those men and women who have served in the armed forces. We are here to render unto this patriot God who, God who give unto their, of their time on a volunteer basis to serve these young men and women when they come home. Alive or not. We are to render to those people the honor that is due to those people. And this is what we forget in this nation so often. That we are to render to others because we have become so self-centered and so consumed with our rights. It is our obligation and it is our duty to render honor unto whom honor is due. And that's not me. That's what this word says. Render unto honor whom honor is due. I want to go to 1 Peter 2.17. And Paul says here, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. What does this tell us that we are to do? We are to honor all men. Give to others honor. We are to honor the king. That's our leadership. We had an election here today. Well, not everybody I voted for got elected. And I think that's just a pretty poor thing to happen, but that's, that's neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is, you know, we don't put our, our trust and our faith in any political party or in any political candidate. They all fall short. None of them deliver. I'm disappointed in some of the people that I voted for in the last election cycle. But what I'm saying is, even though they are not people that I would have chosen, they are people that I must honor because they are in authority over me. And do you understand that society, apart from this honor is a society apart from government. What do you think would have happened in, in uh, Jesus' day if the Roman government had just exited from, from Israel without establishing... Well, that's what we're trying to do in Iraq is establish a government. What do you have in the face of no government? You have chaos. You have absolutely a worse situation than you have when you have government. Go government is ordained by God. I don't understand it. It's like the statement was in Sunday school this morning. When God does it, when God says it, I don't question why. I may not know. Many times I don't. But I don't question why. We know that God has established authority and placed authority over us. Where would we be if we didn't have police officers? Where would we be if we didn't have firemen? Where would we be if we didn't have EMT? Where would we be if we didn't have men and women who are able and willing to serve their country and project on the face of the earth? The name of the United States. We don't, we don't, we, we do not, we are not a nation of conquerors. We are a, a, a nation of defenders. We, we only defend. That's what the, that's, that's what the president is charged with. That's what the military is, to defend and protect the borders and the citizens. We don't go out and try to conquer the world like the Romans did or the Carthaginians did, or the Greeks did, or the Japanese did, or the Germans did. We don't do that. 
We just defend. And let me tell you something. In the world in which we live, we need to be defended. I guarantee you, we need to be defended. I'm, I'm not here to preach any philosophy, but I am here to say that those young men and women who serve, they may not agree. With, with I, 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 I'm not even going to address that issue. They may not agree. And you and I may not agree with what's transpiring and what, what the leaders of this nation have tried to do. And only time and only history will tell if this is the right course of action and were mistakes made in this course of action. Only time and only history would tell. But we are here, and it is now. And our obligation and our responsibility is to honor those, to respect those, who serve this nation. Now, I, I want to just take a little side trip and I want to say this. We're coming up on the holiday season. I had a son-in-law who was in the service at the time of uh, the, the, the Second War when it started and uh, my daughter was uh, pregnant. His, his, daughter, his daughter was born while he was overseas. Uh, he did get to come back for Christmas just the way that it worked out. One of the one of the soldiers that was in his rotation said, you go back because you've got a new child and, and I'll go back later. We'll just switch dates. But the issue that I want to say is, is this. During that period of time in which he was overseas, I was never more so acutely aware of the sacrifices that young men and women are asked to make. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us, all of us here today. Find a way. I know the Red Cross is doing some stocking things, and I know there are others, that, but find a way. Just an email or whatever, find a way to encourage, to pack some socks, pack some phone cards, whatever. Find a way. Let's find a way. Let's just ask people, find a way to support those people with the very little things that mean so very much to them. We have so much. We have so much. And it's so little of a sacrifice to ask. It is our faith. It is the foundation of our faith to love, to do for others. And you notice when I asked families to stand up here today, did you notice how many families stood up that have servicemen and women or have had? Greg Upchurch, who carried the first flag in for those of you that are are not aware. His son was Clint. Greg and Cindy raised a fine young man that went off to war and never came home. And I respect him for saluting that flag in the manner he's a Vietnam veteran himself. We stand squarely on the shoulders of men such as Greg and Clint and all of those of you who served in the service. And uh, it's a tremendous sacrifice. I, I cannot reiterate that enough. But I, I, I just want us to know, I just want you to remember that we can do very small things that mean a great deal to those who serve. Very small things. In Second Peter, in First Peter two seventeen, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 
Today we honor our veterans, brave men and women, past and present, whose sacrifices secure our freedoms and guarantee our heritage. I ask you, what is our heritage? Our heritage is very valuable. It's to be able to live free. It's to be able, it's, 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 it's to, be able to travel as we please, to plow our fields and plant our crops as we see fit, to vote, to learn, to pray. I want to go to 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. I'm going to read these verses, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. It's uh, Paul talking to Timothy, and Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is, that is in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach other also. There, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no man that warreth entangled himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, is he not crowned except he strive lawfully? The husband that laboreth must be the first partaker of the fruits. These are the three similitudes that the Bible compares the Christian and the Christian teacher and the Christian those in the Christian faith to. There is the soldier. There is the athlete. And there is the farmer. We concentrate today on the soldier. What is it in verse 1 that Paul tells Timothy to do? Be strong. Now, I, I want to go back to that issue of that young lady that was sitting on the, the floor in that dimly lit area folding her clothes. What do we ask of her? A young woman who is taught duty first and then family. And she says, it's hard. What do we ask of her? We ask her to be strong. And what does God ask us to do? He asks us to be strong, even when it's hard. In verse 3, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is the allegory of the soldier. Endure hardness. Paul is telling Timothy, be able to endure the afflictions and the persecutions and, and all the things that come with being a soldier. The comparison here is to a soldier because a soldier is expected to endure hardness. All the things that are hard. That's the life of a soldier is to endure hardness. Separation, long periods of separation from family and loved ones. Gone when your daughters and sons are born and graduate. Endure hardness as a good soldier. Paul tells us what a good soldier is there. One who is strong and one who endures hardness. We can expect nothing less than hardship since life is a battlefield. Our aim should be to please Him who chose us to be His soldiers. 
In order to be all that He would have us to be, we must avoid entangling ourselves in the conditions around us. We must resemble a garrison in a town where it is quartered and from which it may be at any hour called away. The less encumbered we are, the more easily we shall be able to execute the least command of our great captain. How high an honor it is to be enrolled among his soldiers. How high an honor it is to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. And we need, we need to, to treat our military personnel. That's the, that's the mindset we need to be have. We need to have. It is a very high honor to serve. And every single one that, that, that serves is a volunteer. One of the, uh, I had a young man that used to work for me. He got married and, he had uh, a child, a dependent, and he wanted to join the Marine Corps. And because he was married and had a child, then the Marine Corps recruiter had to come around and, and he had to talk to his pastor and he had to talk to his employer. This was before I was in the vocational ministry. And he came to me and we, we talked and he had some time. And I said, boy, your job must be hard. Getting people that want to volunteer. And he said, oh, no, it's not hard. He said, the hard part of my job is telling some young man or woman that wants to be in the armed forces of, the, of America that they can't because they have an injury, a football injury, a basketball injury, a cheerleading injury. And he said, I have to do that a lot. He said, I have to tell a lot of people who would make good Marines, you can't be one. And that is a hard thing. In Romans 5, 37... For those of you that are guests today, when I begin to do this, that means I'm totally lost and I can't find out where I'm going. So, And I said five, and I really meant eight. <laughs> that would have been the first clue. Huh? Paul says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. <clears throat> no less an author than A.W. Uh, Tozer wrote, more, Still larger conquest, more than conquerors, means not only the spoils of war and triumph, but it also means that you will have new territory, aggressive warfare, and still larger conquest for the glory of the Lord and the salvation of others. Merely to beat back your foes is but a small part of the great commission for the Christian soldier. You are called not only to wield the shield of faith, but also the sword of the Spirit. By this we move against the conquered foe and claim new territory with each advance. You have the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The armor on the left is for defense, but the armor on the right is for aggression. You are called not only to stand your ground when the evil day comes, but to go out and reclaim the world for Christ. Such conflicts meet us in our Christian work at every step, in people we seek to win for Jesus, in the progress of the truth, and in the spread of the gospel. These conflicts will appear in the awakening and reviving of the church of God, in the elevation of Christian life and holiness, in the suppression of evil in all its myriad and gigantic forms. We will find these conflicts in the evangelization of the world and the hastening of our Master's kingdom and of His coming. Surely we should not be ever occupied in merely holding our own salvation. Indeed, we will hold it best by leaving it with God and pressing on to claim the salvation of others. 
The best way to keep the devil off our territory is to keep him busy on his own. Defending his kingdom from our bold attacks. More than conquerors, likewise, means not only to win our battle and save our territory, but to bring honor to our captain and God. Thus, we may be a credit to our cause and so conduct ourselves in the campaign that God should be glorified. We must have the courage of our convictions to be able to say, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, let's turn to that, in Daniel 3, 17 through 18. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. And the, the, the captives of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the ruler of that great harlot Babylon, had set up a golden image and said, everybody is to worship this image. If you don't, I'm going to throw you into fire. And he blew a trumpet and everybody kneeled down to worship except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he said, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And he said in verse 15, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of our hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That needs to be the strength of our conviction. We need to be able, as uh, Daniel in uh, Daniel 6.10. Daniel knew that King Darius had signed a proclamation that said, if you worship any other god for the next 30 days, I'm going to throw you into a pit of lions that you'll be eaten up. And Daniel knew that that was contrary to the Word of God, which said he can't worship other gods. Now, when Daniel, in verse 10, knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before the God, as he did before. We must have the strength of character of Daniel. We must have the strength of our convictions as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. God wants men and women today on whom He can depend to stand as bulwarks and battlements against the shocks of hell's artillery. He wants men and women of whom He can say, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I typically wouldn't read such a lengthy statement as I'm going to read. Uh, this is a, a uh, valedictory speech given by Douglas MacArthur at West Point on 1920, in 1962. Though it's a little lengthy, I'd like each of us to listen to its words. As he speaks to these young men and women who are, well, at that time there, there wouldn't have been any young women in the Corps, but these young men who are about to graduate and begin their service to their country. The title of this is Duty, Honor, Country. 
General Westmoreland, General Groves, distinguished guests and gentlemen of the Corps, as I was leaving the hotel this morning, the doorman asked me, where are you bound for, General? And when I replied, West Point, he remarked, beautiful place. Have you ever been there before? No human being could fail to be deeply moved by such a tribute as this, coming from a profession I have served so long and a people I have loved so well. It fills me with an emotion I cannot express. But this, is, this award is not intended primarily for a personality, but to symbolize a great moral code, the code of conduct and chivalry of those who guard this beloved land of culture and ancient descent. That is the meaning of this medallion, for all eyes and for all time. It is an expression of the ethics of the American soldier that I should be integrated that I should be integrated in this way with so noble an ideal espouses a sense of pride and humility which will be with me always. Duty, honor, country. These three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be and what you can be, what you will be. They are your rallying point to build courage when courage seems to fail, to regain faith when there seems to be little cause for faith, to create hope when hope becomes Lord. Unhappily, I possess neither the eloquence of dictation, that poetry of imagination, nor that brilliance of metaphor to tell you all that they mean. The unbelievers will say that they are words, but a slogan, but a flamboyant phrase. Every pennant, every demagogue, every cynic, every hypocrite, every troublemaker, and I am sorry to say some others of an entirely different character, will try to downgrade them even to the extent of mockery and ridicule. But these are some of the things they do. They build your basic character. They mold you for your future roles, the custodians of the nation's defense. They make you strong enough to know when you are weak and brave enough to face yourself when you are afraid. They teach you to be proud and unbending and honest failure, but humble and gentle in success, not to substitute words for action, nor to seek the path of comfort, but to face the stress and spur of difficulty and challenge. <clears throat> to learn to stand up in the storm, but to have compassion for those who fall. To master yourself before you seek to master others. To have a heart that is clean, a goal that is high. To learn to laugh, yet never forget how to weep. To reach into the future, but never neglect the past. To be serious, yet never take yourself too seriously. To be modest, so that you will remember the simplicity of true greatness. The open mind of true weakness. The meekness of true strength. They give you a temperate will, a quality of imagination, a vigor of emotions, a freshness, a freshness of the deep springs of life, a temperamental predominance of courage over timidity, an appetite for adventure over love of ease. They create in your heart the sense of wonder, the unfailing hope of what next, and the joy and inspiration of life. They teach you in this way to be an officer and a gentleman. And what sort of soldiers are those you are to lead? Are they reliable? Are they brave? Are they capable of victory? Their story is known unto all of you. It is the story of the American man-at-arms. My estimate of him was formed on the battlefields many, many years ago and has never changed. I regard him then as I regard him now as one of the world's noblest figures, not only as one of the finest military characters, but also as one of the most stainless. His name and fame are the birthright of every American citizen. In his youth and strength, his love and loyalty, he gave all that mortality can give. 
He needs no eulogy from me or from any other man. He has written his history and written it in red on his enemy's breast. But when I think of his patience under adversity, of his courage under fire, and of his modesty and victory, I am filled with an emotion of admiration I cannot put into words. He belongs to history as furnishings one of the greatest examples of successful patriotism. He belongs to posterity as the instructor of future generations in the principles of liberty and freedom. He belongs to the present, to us, by his virtues and by his achievements. In 20 campaigns on 100 battlefields around 1,000 campfires, I have witnessed that enduring fortitude, that patriotic self-abnegation and that invincible determination which have carved his statue in the hearts of his people. From one end of the, from one end of the world to the other, he has drained deep the chalice of courage. As I listened to those songs of the Glee Cub in memory's eye, I could see those staggering columns of the First World War bending under soggy packs on many a weary march from dripping dusk to drizzling dawn, slogging ankle-deep through mire of shell-pocked roads to form grimly for the attack, blue-lipped, covered with sludge and mud, chilled by the wind and rain, driving home to their objective and for many to the judgment seat of God. I do not know the dignity of their birth, but I do know the glory of their death. They died unquestioning, uncomplaining, with faith in their hearts and on their lips the hope that we would go on to victory. Always for them, duty, honor, country. Always their blood and sweat and tears as they saw the way and the light. And 20 years after, on the other side of the globe, against the filth of dirty foxhole, the stench of ghostly trenches, the slime of dripping dugouts, those boiling suns of the relentless heat, whose torrential rains of devastating storms, the loneliness and utter desolation of jungle trails, the bitterness of long separation from those they loved and cherished, the deadly pestilence of tropic disease, the horror of stricken areas of war, their resolute and determined defense, their swift and sure attack, their indomitable purpose, their complete and decisive victory, always victory, always through the bloody haze of their last reverberating shot, the vision of gaunt, ghastly men reverently following your password of duty, honor, country. The code, the code which those words perpetuate embraces the highest moral laws and will stand the test of any ethics or philosophies ever promulgated for the uplift of mankind. Its requirements are for the things that are right, and its restraints are from the things that are wrong. The soldier above all other men is required to practice the greatest act of religious training, sacrifice. In battle and in the face of danger and death, he discloses those divine attributes which his master gave him when he created man in his own image. No physical courage and no brute instinct can take the place of the divine help which alone can sustain him. However horrible the incidents of war may be, the soldier who is called upon to offer and give his life for his country is the noblest development of mankind. You now face a new world, a world of change. And through all this welter of change and development, your mission remains fixed, determined, inviolable. It is to win our wars. Everything else in your professional career is but corollary to this vital dedication. All other public purpose, all other public process, all other public needs, great or small, will find others for their accomplishment. But you are the ones who are trained to fight. 
Yours is the profession of arms, the will to win, the sure knowledge that in war there is no substitute for victory, that if you lose, the nation will be destroyed, that the very obsession of your public service must be duty, honor, country. Others will debate the controversial issues, <clears throat> national and international, which divide men's minds. But serene, calm, aloof, you stand as the nation's war guardians, as its lifeguards from the raging tides of international conflict, as its gladiators in the arena of battle. For a century and a half, you have defended, guarded, and protected hallowed traditions of liberty and freedom, of right and justice. Let civilian voices argue the merits or demerits of our process of government, whether our strength is being sapped by deficit financing indulged in too long, by federal paternalism grown too mighty, by power groups grown too arrogant, by politics grown too corrupt, by crime grown too rampant, by morals grown too low, by taxes grown too high, by extremists grown too violent, whether our personal liberties are as firm and as complete as they should be. These great national problems are not for your participation, your professional participation or military solution. Your guidepost stands out like a tenfold beacon in the night. Duty, honor, country. You are the leaven which binds together the entire fabric of our national system of defense. <clears throat> From your ranks come the great captains who hold the nation's destiny in their hands. And the moment the war Tuscan sounds, the long gray line has never failed us. Were you, to do, were you to do so, a million ghosts in olive drab, in brown khaki, in blue and gray, would rise from their white crosses, thundering these magic words, duty, honor, country. This does not mean that you are warmongers. On the contrary, the soldier above all other people prays for peace. For he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. But always in our ears ring the ominous words of Plato, that wisest of all philosophers. <clears throat> Only the dead have seen the end of war. The shadows are lengthening for me. The twilight is here. My days of old has vanished. Tone and tense. They have gone glimmering through the dreams of things that were. Their memory is one of wondrous beauty, <clears throat> watered by tears and coaxed and caressed by the smiles of yesterday. I listened then, but with thirsty ear, for the witching melody of faint bugles blowing reveille, of far drums beating the long roll. In my dreams I hear again the clash of guns, the rattle of musketry, the strange mournful mutter of the battlefield, but in the evening of my memory I come back to West Point. Always their echoes and re-echoes, duty, honor, country. As we close the service today, I want to ask these are words, of course, that were written to young men and women who were young men who were preparing to serve in the military, but they're words which I felt like really could be a benefit to us all. <coughs> Duty, honor, country. And that is above all else. Let us always remember we have a duty to Christ our King. We are soldiers in His army. And the example that is set before us as soldiers are the example of those who serve, who serve their country. Again, I want to thank the members of the Patriot Guard for their attendance here. I want to thank you for being here and, and uh, 
I just want to close with one thing. This is uh, how, how many of you here were Boy Scouts? Boy Scouts. You know what? I I remembered not the whole pledge. I was a scout myself, but that's been a long time ago. But you know, when we talk about words that could mean a lot to people that 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 are that should convince people. I want to just recite to you the pledge of the Boy Scouts. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. This is what we need to teach. This is what we need to preach. And this is the way we need to be. Let's pray.